welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 76. Great program this week, as always. So happy to uh, be able to bring this show every week. I'm very thankful for the positive feedback I've been getting. Um, of course, always a pleasure to have all the guests that I bring on, and an especial pleasure to have uh, guests that I can consider a friend of mine, as I can this week. Uh, but before we jump into that, let me make my usual pitch, my song and dance, as it were, for Counterpunch. Um, so vital to support independent media. I'm sure that the guest that I have this week is uh, certainly going to echo that sentiment. Uh, considering the political situation now, considering the onslaught on journalism, whether it's even you know of the mainstream variety and especially of the alternative variety, did I say mainstream? My guest is going to chastise me for saying mainstream and not corporate. But um, yes, corporate media, alternative media, very much in the spotlight as the, uh, the midtime Mussolini sits in the White House with his orange face and his dark cloud hanging over all of us. Um, we need to support our media projects, and Counterpunch is, I think, one of the best, one of the most important, an outpost in the wilderness, if you will, and I will. Um, a Counterpunch subscription gets you that print magazine, such a great magazine. You get um, all of the regular columns from Jeff Sinclair and, and Mike Whitney and uh, Chris Floyd and so many others, but of course also feature articles from a wide variety of voices on the left, including yours truly in the current issue. So do consider becoming a subscriber and getting that, uh, that, that magazine every other month. And of course you can also just donate to Counterpunch, get the PayPal, use the PayPal feed pick up the phone, call Becky in Petrolia, California, talk to her, annoy her, make her your friend, uh, whatever you got to do. It's a great way to support Counterpunch. Get some stickers, get some t-shirts, uh, whatever else we can sell out of the trunk of our proverbial cars. And uh, let's see, what else? Oh, also, of course, I want to just quickly note that uh, next week we will be taking a break from Counterpunch Radio as I will be traveling. Um, so I guess you're hearing this on Monday, whatever, February 20th or something like that. So most likely then in early March, two weeks from then, you will hear the next episode. I'm sure it'll be a good one. In fact, I guarantee it'll be a good one. Will it be as good as this week? Who knows? Because this week I have Mickey Huff on the program. Mickey Huff is a professor of history and social science at uh, Diablo Valley College in Northern California. And uh, maybe equally, if not more important, he is the director of Project Censored, the, you know, that, that project that uh, annual book and the project that we all know and we all love. And if you don't know it, you're about to, and you'll love it, I promise. Also, he is the president of the Media Freedom Foundation. You can follow Mickey every week on Project Censored Radio on KPFA out of, uh, out of the Bay Area, and I believe also streaming online. All of that said, Mickey Huff, welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Eric, thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to talk to you, and of course, it's an honor to be on uh, Counterpunch. What what an incredible publication, and now a great radio show that you're all doing. Oh, thank you so much, Mickey, um, and I would extend the favor right back to you. Favor? Not really. <clears throat> extend the compliment is what I meant to say. Um, now, we have a lot to talk about. Let's jump right into it. Um, 
Man, I, you know, before we started recording, I was like, where are we going to where are we going to begin? I mean, we could talk about Trump and we can talk about the deep state or, you know, the narrative around the deep state. We can talk about fake news. I think maybe fake news is really kind of in your wheelhouse there at Project Censored. Let's start there. Tell me, uh, give me your initial analysis of this now mainstreamed phenomenon, so-called fake news. What is that from the perspective of someone who is a critical media literacy advocate? What is fake news and why is this now such a hot button issue? Well, that's a a great place to kick off, um, uh, Eric. Fake news is something that came out of, in its current iteration, uh, of course, uh, fake fake news is is um, this term that's been used to try to deflect um, any kind of responsibility away from the Democratic Party, particularly the the Democratic National Committee, um, you know, looking for for ways to to try to instead of addressing the potential weaknesses of a Hillary Clinton, you know, corporate Democratic candidate. You know, a dynastic candidate, the Clinton Foundation. Um, instead of addressing what was wrong with that campaign and how it was run, the people inside the DNC decided that they could scapegoat it ten ways till Tuesday. And along the way, you know, you know whether whether it was the Russians are coming or uh, fake news coming from basements of teenagers in Macedonia, um, we were told that somehow fake news uh, was uh, a huge. Uh, scandalous uh, and impactful problem that cost Hillary Clinton the presidency, one that she won the popular vote by three million votes, roughly. So that's another way to not address the Electoral College or uh, other weaknesses to make it close enough to take away in those uh, few handful of Rust Belt states. Uh, it's <laughs> it also, of course, doesn't you know look at any of the flaws of the Clinton campaign, how they didn't go on the ground, and they all basically drank their own sort of digital Kool Aid and, and number crunching. They didn't want to address voter suppression, which is a real problem, or cross check, as Greg Palast has discussed. Uh, they didn't want to look at election fraud, as Mark Crispin Miller will talk about, or others. Um, but in that whole big batch of things that they, you know, didn't want to talk about, came one thing they did want to talk about outside of Russia, and that was fake news. Um, the idea that Russia hacked and and gave uh, uh, information to WikiLeaks is all part of this weird, strange, twisted tale <laughs> that involves the 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 specter of fake news. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson would be having a field day. I know. Uh, if he were with us, talk about fear and loathing, uh, boy, uh, we're we're in it. But l- let me cut to the chase here just a little bit. Um, in terms of fake news and the way that it, we, uh, the way that uh, critical media literacy scholars are talking about this recent iteration, fake news is it's it's a demonstrably fabricated and packaged kind of information that's designed to look like legitimate. News now. Now this is a, again. It's this is a narrow definition, and I want to say that at Project Censored, we've been dealing with propaganda, junk food news, news abuse, um, you know, all different kinds, psyops, all kinds of things um, for the last forty years. In fact, this is episode seventy-six. Project Censored was founded in nineteen seventy-six. Ooh, good tie-in. So Look at that. Yeah. So for forty years, we've been doing this, and so we were rather amused to see the the. Uh, popularity of the term take off coming out of the DNC through the corporate news media and kind of be weaponized 
you know, as a, we're victims of fake news. And immediately we went to the, um, not we, but the DNC and the corporate media. They started looking at the tech, the big tech titans, uh, Facebook and Google and how, what were they, what was their role and how were they to blame for this fake news? It's actually kind of interesting that story number four in our censored 2017, the 40th anniversary book talks about search engine algorithms and electronic voting machines that could possibly swing the 16 election. Now, mind you, there's a study that came out just in the last couple of weeks that determined that fake news did not, in fact, affect in any meaningful way the outcome of the most recent presidential election. But I footnote that momentarily. <clears throat> this this still means that we need to kind of go through and see, OK, well, how then in the world was Google and Facebook responsible for fake news dissemination? Well, it, it happened to then involve algorithms and involve things that are shared and and so forth and share and go viral. Right untruths get halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on and gets out of bed. You know the saying. And so there's this idea somehow that Hillary Clinton's campaign was bedeviled by fake stories and, and Trump and Putin laughed their way to the White House and Kremlin together. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's a problem with this in a lot of ways. Uh, the first reaction from Zuckerberg, uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook was actually to literally laugh off the idea that Facebook was responsible for spreading fake news, which is pretty telling, meaning Facebook as a business model, social media thing, um, you know, less interested in, in content, more interested in algorithms uh, that have to do with habits and consumerism um, as an ideology, not necessarily Republican or Democrat. But uh, apparently his PR people and handlers got a hold of him, Zuckerberg, and said, hey, um, you know, this is a serious thing and people are actually angry about it. So maybe you should look like you're going to do something about it. <laughs> well, he did then spring into action by saying he was going to bring on board PolitiFact and Fact Check and Snopes and all the world would be righted and everything would go great because these organizations, of course, uh, are somehow infallible. Uh, they're not partisan. They don't make mistakes. They don't have agendas. Uh, and anybody that's ever studied these organizations knows that they have their own problems and issues and biases. I've caught Snopes on my own in a couple of issues with Project Censored stories where they um, issued false reports about uh, the stories that were in some of our previous books. But I digress. Um, not saying that there's not something okay with having these kind of sites, but the problem isn't the notion that somehow you should just outsource this kind of information integrity assessment to one of these organizations. Um, but the idea also was then that these organizations, news organizations and Facebook and Google and others could censor certain news stories if they were deemed to be false news stories or yeah. fake news stories, right? Now, you know where we're going with this, Eric, because – I know you you're well versed in this and you're you're all too kind to let me me talk because uh, I know that you could be finishing every one of these sentences. Uh, <laughs> nobody nobody needs to hear that. You're you keep going. Yeah, but you, you but you know that this this comes to a head after the election in early November. I'm sorry, mid-November. Um in the Washington Post uh kind of comes into play and they wrote uh, an incredible hit piece. In fact, a guy named Craig Timberg, that used to be a national security uh, editor there, uh, wrote, wrote a piece uh, claiming Russian propaganda helped spread fake news during the election and in this kind of a business. But the, the interesting thing is he cites this totally bogus or shadowy organization called Prop or Not, Propaganda or Not. 
Um, and the guy didn't vet it at all. They had a list of 200, quote, offending sites that were responsible for fake news. And guess what they included, Eric? Antiwar.com, Lou Rockwell, the Libertarian site, Ron Paul Institute, Truthout, um, Manar Mahawash's Mint Press News. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Counterpunch may have been on oh, one yes of the. Yes, it was. Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, many, many others that a lot yeah, of listeners follow. Yeah, and so it didn't take long for people with half a brain to figure out that this was a propaganda attempt to shut down alternative independent news sources that were critical, not only of establishment politics, but of dinosaur media and corporate media in general. So Timberg's piece was pretty shameless, and he was even, I think the Post had a couple threatened lawsuits. I know Counterpunch sternly opposed it. I think Naked Capitalism threatened a lawsuit. I believe Paul Craig Roberts threatened a lawsuit. A number of others, many of whom probably would be at each other's throats and don't necessarily agree with each other, but certainly found themselves in the same camp on this issue. They surely did, and this was a Trojan horse by the Washington Post, you know, or the, we could call it the Washington Compost. We could call it Bezos Amazon CIA Adventure. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he got six hundred million dollar contract, uh, Jeff Bezos, with the CIA right after taking over the Washington Post, that we pointed out numerous times in our censored books. And of course, the long history of uh, the mighty Wurlitzer and the CIA connections in the media from Mockingbird on. We wrote about that in the 2017 book this year, too, with Brian Covert. So there's long ties with the CIA and media, and especially at the Washington Post. You can draw your own conclusions from that. But this piece that Timberg wrote was kind of like right out of the Mockingbird playbooks, right? Right out of the playbook of smashing alternative independent media, um, you know, while simultaneously wrecking that, but also propping up the notion that Hillary Clinton was cheated from the election. So it was a twofer and a Trojan horse against alternative media. Now, what happens with that story, of course, is it gets deflated, like much like the, the deflate gate scandal that people didn't want to look at, but uh, with, with the great Patriots, Tom Brady, the Trump supporter, yes. um, uh, but again, I digress. But so what happens here is the next thing that goes on is that the post is caught basically not vetting it, not checking it out, not asking any questions. And I mean, it's shoddy reporting. I mean, if, if a student turned in a report like this, they would fail an assignment. You know, what's funny about it, Mickey, too, is that is that everything that the article basically accused these media outlets of being guilty of things like, you know, unsourced, unfounded allegations and all of the rest. That is exactly what this article was. And it, oh, the, the yeah. article itself was the fake news. And that's why, you know, the irony of it wasn't lost on a lot of people from the very moment that the article uh, appeared on the website no i was astounded when i was first reading it you know and uh, and and you know we were we were fresh off the heels of our 40th anniversary summit and you know mark crispin miller and abby martin menar mahawish david talbot uh lance dehaven smith so many people you know coming in we were really hitting hard on the propaganda from the campaign and all that and then this just falls out of the sky from the washington post and and or falls from or or comes up from the deep state rather but the interesting thing that takes place shortly thereafter is if that wasn't enough the fake news at the Washington Post but then they had the bogus story of Russians hacking the power grid in Vermont that never happened yep right yep and so then they have to go and wheel retractions out on that so you know the, the a lot of the fake news that we were seeing was actually coming from 
places like Proper Nut from the Washington Post. Um, they were also parroting the blacklist for professors and various things. I mean, this is just, you know, shameless Cold War redux propaganda but the, in so the, many ways. The thing about it, the thing about it that's interesting now, though, is as we've seen this concept of fake news, yes, everything you said is true. Of course, it was kind of trotted out and, and made into this, you know, you know, nationally understood meme uh, right after the election and absolutely connected to Hillary Clinton and the Democratic party and, you know, explaining away how they snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and so forth. But now we've seen this kind of transformation of this concept where now Donald Trump and, you know, yeah. and the administration has weaponized it for their own purposes. Yep. So on the one hand, it's like the Democratic Party sort of let this let let this uh, lion yep. out of the cage. And now all of a sudden, you know, the orange menace is using it every time anybody asks a question that's uncomfortable for him. And so it's become it's become a, a sort of a dominant a, a tool of the dominant ruling class well it's the pandora's box right and it's 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 the genie out of the bottle it's the weaponized information much like how the cia helped weaponize the term conspiracy theory now it's being uh, weaponized in many ways exactly as you as you stated you you took the words literally out of my mouth in terms of how this has now been a caveat to fake news and i'm i'm saying this it's interesting you know at project censored we also um, our partners with the Action Coalition for Media Education and the Sacred Heart University grad program in media literacy and digital culture. You know, the folks, Rob Williams, Julie Frechette, Bill Usman, Laurie Usman, um, Allison Butler. Uh, and we run this, uh, we have a new joint effort called the Global Critical Media Literacy Project. And we just posted <coughs> in the last two weeks, <coughs> excuse me, we just posted a piece that uh, Allison Butler helped do from the Massachusetts library system. Um, and it's called post-election post-truth. And you can check it out online at gcml.org using comprehensive media literacy to assess and evaluate news. So the antidote to this, in other words, I'm going to segue back to the, your, your, your comment about how it's now weaponized, but the antidote to this, this fake news phenomenon isn't censorship. It's not outsourcing, because that's what Google and Facebook want. It's not outsourcing it to Fact Check or PolitiFact or ABC News, who, by the way, PolitiFact um, or Fact Check said only had a 60% accuracy rating. So even the people Zuckerberg were throwing in didn't even agree with each other's own integrity, which is hilarious to me. Um, but this study uh, online goes through and kind of puts the nuts and bolts to it. So I'd urge people to go and check it out. It has definitions, including satire. But then it also has – and propaganda, of course. Uh, but then it caveats the fake news and says exactly what you just said. Now fake news is anything that we don't want to hear. Fake news is anything we disagree with up to the point to where Trump's advisor, Kellyanne Conway, uh, said that, well, we have alternative facts. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know that, that's the uh, epitome of weaponization of the terminology such that we can all seemingly live in our siloed alternative realities – and facts, post, we're not just in an Oxford Dictionary post-truth world. After 9-11, we entered a whole post-fact world 
where people seem to be impervious to facts and factual analysis. And But I would suggest strongly that the antidote to this is critical media literacy education, critical thinking skills, diversification of media um, from all different spectrums uh, ideologically, and to be have transparent sourcing, to have open dialogue, debate, and discourse, to have people make arguments devoid of fallacious reasoning. I mean, this is what we propose at Project Censored, Global Critical Media Literacy Project. Um, and, you know, we're doing talks all over the country right now. Just uh, in the next week, we'll be talking with Ralph Nader, you know, down in Los Angeles, doing a whole panel at University of Laverne on fake news and this kind of business. It's interesting that this has backfired not only in the way that you suggested, where it's weaponized to the point to where it's being used to dissuade. It's, it's creating this ruling class. It's a plutocratic civil war, you know, from, from the deep state to the surface. And what's going on, I think, around it um, is is a, a strange opportunity. It's a strange opportunity because many, many people right now are are sensitive to or I think there's a heightened awareness of how information is weaponized and how people can't trust information sources. So we worked with Susan Merritt, a librarian, and have a piece on this Project Censored site that talks about assessing information integrity. Uh, you know, she teaches uh, grad school, a library, a library school, information science school down in San Jose University. So there are ways to combat this, and I think that this might be an opportunity to stress this education and these learning curves to the public so that they can do their own thinking. Emma Goldman once said the most unpardonable sin in society is independence of thought. Well, I think we need more sinners and more independence of thought, and we really need to have the critical thinking tools in order to do that, and critical media literacy education is what provides that. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned another term uh, earlier that I just want to give a little clarification to and, and expand on that. You mentioned the term conspiracy theory and conspiracy theorizing. Right. And I think that that's an important issue because when I first heard the term fake news being used, this was not this is not a term that, you know, has been around for that long. This is a relatively new term in our right. you know contemporary lexicon. And I was like, oh, OK, they're just rebranding, you know, the, the, the tired old, you know, scarlet letter of conspiracy thinking, which to be fair, uh, conspiracy theory, quote unquote, is a term that is a double-edged sword because there are people who make all kinds of wild and ridiculous claims that fall into, under the rubric of conspiracy theory, but there's also a lot of other people who don't fall in line with what the ruling establishment has to say that are labeled in that way. And so I was Correct. thinking, okay, so fake news is basically conspiracy theory 2.0, but as we've seen this evolve, this is now taken on, uh, I, I think, uh, sort of a character of its own far beyond just this term of marginalization of conspiracy theory, right? This is now something else. And I want to talk a little bit about that. How has the concept of fake news gone way beyond just a term of marginalizing to where now it's almost a an overt form of censorship? Oh, I agree entirely in terms of fake. Now it basically means that if something is labeled fake news, this is how I would argue it's partially similar to the conspiracy theory label that came out of memo 1035960 uh, through the Central Intelligence Agency after the Warren Commission report, um, you know, basically whitewashed and covered up the killing, the deep state assassination of JFK. And that's, that's by the way, outlined at great length in Lance DeHaven Smith's book, Conspiracy Theory in America, which is uh, Mark Crispin Miller's edited series at U U UT Press. Anybody that wants to be serious, I think, about understanding state 
Crimes Against Democracy and Conspiracy Theory should seriously read, um, I think, Lance DeHaven Smith, Mark Miller, and and others. But more back to this uh, this point with, with fake news, it's a way of dismissing a priori anything that someone doesn't want to deal with, doesn't want to address, doesn't want to try on, and again, dismisses a priori. The very fact that the, that the current president of the United States openly wields the term from the bully pulpit at press conferences in front of foreign dignitaries, I'm using that term in the aerial quotes given Netanyahu, <laughs> yeah. but you get, I mean, that shows the remarkable extent to which that there is a serious effort to to really shape and frame and suppress narratives simultaneously. And so I think that the fake news sort of mimetic quality is so amorphous and so big tent in its application um, and so P.T. Barnum-like that um, – you know, I, I'm I'm not sure where it is going to go next. It's almost like we're in the midst of a seriously epistemological crisis. Yes, that's exactly where I was gonna. That's exactly what I was gonna get at. Is where is this going? Because you know. Where it stands now, you know, it's it's sort of like I mean, I hate to sound sort of reductionistic about it, but you know, it's all fun and games when it's Donald Trump. But the question, you know, <laughs> the question is like, what is going to happen when it's not, you know, this 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 orange faced lunatic standing in front of America, but a well polished, well versed politician with slick talking points, somebody who looks the part, acts the part, who really you mean like Barack Obama? Yeah, like somebody like an Obama or whoever's going to come behind, you know, the 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 orange menace what's going to happen then now you're giving them a very potent weapon of censorship that one that can be utilized in a way that might even be more potent than a lot of our military weapons well i you know hey look i can't agree with that anymore i mean i mean that's i couldn't agree with you anymore uh, you know the cia and the and the deep state intelligence agencies have known for decades that controlling information and controlling language uh, you know this is right out of bernays playbook edward bernays propaganda 1928 the george creel commission the committee on public information in world war 1 uh you know Her- howard gosnell harold gosnell uh walter lippman you know these cats knew that if you can control the words the phrases you can control the thoughts you know you, you these unseen mechanisms pull the wires that control the public mind I mean, this is 100 years in the making at least, and this is the way that it's done. If you go back and read the Army field manuals even from back in the 1950s you know, and 60s at the height of the Cold War, these things are addled with how-to in terms of psyops, black ops, you know, contr- deception. You know, we, well, we go back to Sun Tzu, man. I mean, we go back a ways with this. It's certainly way older than the United States, but it's been – it's been honed technologically in our ubiquitously digital culture to the point to where I do believe that many people are on the verge of epistemological crises. And people uh, – this is, again, why I go back to saying that critical media literacy skills are the things that we have in our toolbox that help us potentially deconstruct media, understand ownership, understand distribution, understand intent um, – unmask uh, ulterior motives because what you were just saying about yeah sure we now have cheeto jesus to contend with but what's next um who else will be here and the very fact that now the bully pulpit is able to bullhorn terms like fake news at anything it doesn't you know agree with 
and the public is now understanding that a lot of media reports are increasingly false and public faith or public trust in corporate media is at historic lows, um, you know, this is like the perfect storm, right? And I think this is when demagogues may uh, come to heel and, and actually sway the day. And, you know, I don't want to make tired historical analogies to 1933 and the Weimar Republic and so forth. But, you know, imagine what another Reichstag would look like now for Mr. 39% approval rating. Uh, imagine what it would do now to close down channels of debate and discussion about alternative news. Imagine what happened in September of 2001 when another sagging, unelected, elected Supreme Court-appointed president uh, had no clue uh, what was happening and was a puppet of the neoconservative movement. I think there's a lot of echoes and scary things behind this, but I, I would like to suggest, I would like to suggest, I would like to suggest that um, this is also an opportune, an opportune time to engage our fellow citizens and human beings and, and really, really start to discuss the key issues of the day, information integrity, where we get our information, how do we become journalists and be the media in our own lives, and how do we help how do we help build our own communities? And you know, I don't mean this like kumbaya style. I mean, you know, with all the things that are happening from climate change to, you know, Fukushima, which is still spewing record levels in the, in the Pacific. Fukushima? Um, never heard of it. Yeah, exactly. You've certainly never heard of it if you watch corporate media in the United States. But we are at a precipice here in so many ways that I think that if we don't really get a grip on our language and our thoughts and our ideas and how they mold our actions to meaningfully uh, push back the capitalist, uh, transnational capitalist class agendas of enclosure and just usurpation of humanity uh, in any real uh, poetic way. Uh, I, I think we are facing down some grim times, Eric. I agree and, with that. I agree with that. Go ahead. I'm and sorry. I think we need. I think we need to get serious about our information integrity. And we need to be calling out, not by using terms like fake news, but we need to be calling out the logical inconsistencies in arguments. We need to be calling out the historical context behind comments and things that are that are stated. We need to deconstruct policies. We need to look. Do you remember the? Uh, do you remember um, the section, the Global Engagement Center, uh, that was uh, part of the NDAA this past year? Oh, sure, yeah. Where, uh, I mean, this is something that totally went under the radar for the most part about how now the government's creating a center that gets to decide what information is considered legitimate, identify uh, potential sources of information that are the, the government claims is disinformation. I mean, we're in an overt information war right now, not a covert one that you and I described moments ago. So I think that now is the time, if we're going to be getting on so this so-called battlefield of disinformation, I think the only thing that we can use to counter that is critical media literacy education. I know I sound like a broken record, but I think that this is an idea and this is a concept that has not really been given uh, a real effort, a real try and real consideration on a national level. Well, I definitely agree with that. Now, um, before we go to break, I do want to bring up one other point, though. Uh, and in in one sense, it's it's related to this. But um, 
while we can talk about fake news and all of the rest of that, I think we also need to be conscientious and conscious of uh, the let's call it the ramifications of the echo chamber. And that's a major problem in my view. And I'll just give one example that is really prevalent right now that, that kind of gives me, um, you know, I don't know, makes me, makes me taste my own vomit or something. You know, it's the, nor- the narrative of the deep state at war with Donald Trump. Okay, Mm -hmm. this is an interesting concept because up until very recently, the very term deep state was not something that you would hear discussed in corporate media or within society at large. I mean, this was relegated to people like Peter Dale Scott, who I believe coined the term and many others who kind of get into a lot of these more David Talbot, et cetera. These 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 more, let's say, um, esoteric um, aspects of some of these issues but now it's out in the mainstream and the danger in my Just view like fake news right right but the danger in my view is in neutering the term in yes. overusing it and oversimplifying it to the point where it loses all meaning and and here's what I'm here's what I'm getting at you have a lot of people talking about uh the deep state being at war with Donald Trump I've seen this in mainstream publications in all alternative over. media publications and as far as I'm concerned this is ridiculous this is a ridiculous line of analysis not because there's no such thing as a deep state but because understanding the nature of the deep state and how it functions and how it's manifesting right now, this is the part that most people's analysis is lacking. So the idea that the deep state is this undifferentiated, you know, cabal that is speaking with one voice and is going to destroy, you know, attempting to destroy and undermine the current president, I find this completely bogus and totally absurd. Rather, what we're seeing is an internecine conflict within the ruling class and within elements of the deep state where you have civilian intelligence like the CIA on one side, you have military intelligence, the Pentagon, the DIA, yep. Michael, yep. you know, Michael Flynn's people and yep. whatever on the other side, and they're sniping at each other and they're attacking each other. And this is the kind of uh, framework for the analysis that we need. But yet I find in the echo mm-hmm. chamber this reductionist analysis that yes. really kind of makes me pause even talking about the deep state and i want to get your take on that aspect of it and then the implications the danger of losing out on terms and concepts because of the way that they're used well it's just like the problem with conspiracy theory it was weaponized and used to death in so many absurd situations that it became nearly impossible to rationally talk about real conspiracies historically or in the present that were buttressed by facts this I couldn't agree again more. I mean, the the overusage of this term. I mean, frankly, you know, I was just noticing in the last month all of a sudden. I mean, you know, Peter Phillips and I, and uh, you know, a bunch of the you know small group of of folks that have been Russ Baker, et cetera. People have been talking about deep state issues for years and years. Of course, Peter Dale Scott. Um, the 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 current usage of it, you know, like it's some kind of like monolithic Cthulhu like monster from below. Um, that's coming to gobble the, the orange menace, as you craftily have dubbed him. Um, you know, again, it's sophomorically idiotic, and it is a dangerous oversimplification because it ignores all of the nuances that are part of deep state history for anyone that's actually ever studied it, including internally to even the upper echelons of the CIA. 
and other intelligence organizations that are often at war with each other, which, by the way, we also saw in the run-up to the Iraq War, again, the second Iraq War in 2003, with conflict within the CIA, within the Pentagon, and Cheney using political cronies to cherry-pick information. I mean— And and, and in 2007, when the Bush administration wanted to go to war with Iran, and we had the leaked national intelligence estimate debunking the claim of an Iranian nuclear program, also an example of this— internal conflict. Yeah, I agree. If there's anything that might come of this, uh, Eric, that is good, like I mentioned earlier with the concept of fake news, is that it has this this strange effect that now that it's being so overused as a concept, that I think a lot of people are starting to really ask, well, what exactly is this? And so I, ha- and I, maybe I'm being optimistic, but I think that if people really start to look at what is what is this concept of the so-called secret government, um, that maybe it will produce more intelligent dialogue and understanding about what's happening. Maybe we're seeing a little bit in the corporate news media, though I certainly am not holding out for them. But maybe because they are being a little bit more journalistic in their behavior of the coverage of the current administration – I mean, you know, you see people like Shepard Smith over over at Fox kind of getting tabled from his own show for supporting, you know, Acosta over at CNN for having the right to ask legitimate questions and call Trump out on factless claims. I mean, what's ironic about this is that, you know, there's a lot of crowing in corporate media about how this is being it's like, wow, look, look at these people go look at them do this. I'm like, the only reason people are saying, wow, look at them go, is because it looks like the first time they've ever done journalism in the last 20 years. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, this is what journalism looks like. And I say to that, like, you know what? Pick up a copy of the Project Censored book for the last 40 years, and you want to see what real journalism looks like? It's been going on unabated all along. It's just not on TV. Pick up a copy of Counterpunch. Pick up a copy of you know a, a numerous other publications where there are people that are writing about these complicated issues and concepts in historical context. Where there are, and you pointed this out well before, where there are people that are vehemently disagreeing with each other about particular opinions. The difference is, is that they are widely more informed than any of the talking head punditocracy that you see in the corporate news media. So the real problem, too, connected with the corporate news media picking up terms like fake news or deep state is that they tend to overuse them and oversimplify them to the point of fault to where they no longer mean anything at all. And I'm – yeah, so I went from the positive back to the negative, and it's the yin and the yang, and I don't have a crystal ball – but, you know, like I said, again, I think we are at some strange epistemological crossroads here in the early 21st century. And uh, I, again, I think we need roadmaps. I think we need some kind of compass. And I'm going to go back to saying that, you know, having a wide birth, a wide diet of many different independent media sources and carefully crafted and honed critical media literacy skills and critical thinking skills, I think that those are the best defenses against this sloppy language and vast propaganda uh, series of campaigns. I totally agree. Okay, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and uh, we'll pick it up right there on the other side of the break. I'm chatting with Mickey Huff. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back.
Here on Counterpunch Radio, I am chatting with Mickey Huff. Uh, get yourself a copy of Project Censored, uh, the 40th anniversary edition. There's so much good content in there, so many stories that were either uh, underreported or oftentimes completely ignored by the corporate media. Um, also, if I could just uh, make a slight little plug here, you'll have a little a little essay contribution from yours truly in the uh, in the media section there. Uh, really appreciate, of course, Mickey, Peter, and the Project Censored team for allowing me to contribute to that very important book. Uh, So, Mickey, I want to um, kind of Picking up where we left off before the break, I, I want to transition a little bit if I could. I know you said you don't have a crystal ball, and I'm not asking for predictions, but as somebody who studies uh, you know, the media and, and the way in which information is weaponized, as we were talking earlier, one of the things that I think is being completely ignored, and to our peril, I would say, is the implications of what we're living through right now. And here's what I mean. Donald Trump is undeniably at this point a train wreck. I mean, his administration is a train wreck, despite him calling it a well-oiled machine or a fine-tuned <laughs> machine or whatever silliness he said. I think it's pretty clear that, you know, for the people who lived through Nixon, this is something that, you know, they feel like they've seen before in a lot of ways. So here's my here's my concern. What Donald Trump was able to do, and this is what I argued in the current issue of Counterpunch, is to create essentially a very unique voting block, one that really hasn't been seen in this country, certainly uh, not in its current form. And it is of the far right. It it marshals a lot of very nefarious and dangerous forces that have been, to a large extent, forcibly suppressed in this country over the last 50 years and that are really rearing their ugly heads from white supremacists and white nationalists and neo-Nazis to just the generally reactionary racist character of uh, far-right conservative America. And my my concern is that Trump is basically failing on all fronts. He's not really able to even deliver anything more than symbolic gestures to that voting block that he has cobbled together. Now, we've seen in history what happens when, when, when voting blocks and, and political bases feel dejected and feel betrayed by people who uh, they invest their hope in. They become more radicalized. And given the current situation, 
do you fear in the way that I fear that everything becomes more radicalized, that the reaction against Trump, whether it means you get some kind of a progressive like an Elizabeth Warren or some kind of a centrist Democrat like a Hillary Clinton or something, that that will inevitably provoke an even more extreme reaction on the right where they move further in that direction. And then the question is, who picks up that mantle? These are the questions I think that we need to really be considering as we move into the next 10 to 20 years. What's going to happen when somebody who's taken notes on what Donald Trump is doing, somebody in some state legislature in Alabama or in Michigan or in, you know, uh, Ohio or wherever that's saying, I can do what he's doing and I can do it better than that buffoon ever could. This is dangerous. We're headed down a very dangerous path, I think. What's your thought? Well, Milo Yiannopoulos, Steve Bannon. Um, the Breitbart crew, um, you know, there are some of these people that are lurking inside the Trump administration that are clearly attuned with the Richard Spencer, uh, neo-Nazi, white supremacist kind, white nationalist movements. Um, so even though that one would might claim that Trump himself doesn't seem to have uh, or an overt direct allegiance to or delivery system to those parties. They're certainly buttressing his campaign. I'm saying that word on purpose because, you know, he's now taking back to the campaign trail and leaving uh, the bubble of the White House to go back and engage in more of the demagoguery and, you know, the, the, the sort of stir up, stir up the base kind of behavior that I don't think he has any clue what to do with. But much like we had Karl Rove with George W. Bush, I think we have Steve Bannon uh, and others with uh, Donald Trump. And so I think these folks are looking to midwife their program off to whomever will take it. Yep. Uh, Mike Pence is probably a far more stable um, of these characters. And I only say that in relative context to the complete sociopathic instability of Donald Trump. Um, but I, I, I'm worried that these things have now been unearthed and seen the light of day enough that um, I'm wondering where we're headed in, in that regard. Um, you know, this uh, this uh, Stephen Miller, uh, you know, this Goebbels lookalike that we were witnessing here just this past two weeks, um, you know, who's coming out saying that the president will not be questioned and uh, there's no such thing as judicial review. I mean, you know, these aren't even crypto fascist maneuvers. So I, I am in agreement with you that I think that these are forces that are unleashed. These are real things that are going on. The the tepid neoliberal corporate, uh, uh, you know, co-option of of whatever was left of the Democratic Party is not really in any position to counter such a reactionary, uh, you know, movement. In my opinion. No, of course not. And and that's exactly what I'm getting at is the way in which the corporate Democrats and, and their Wall Street backers and whatever. The Cory the way, Booker. Right, exactly. The way in which they're going to be a reaction against this is only going to fuel it further. It's only going to reinforce and further radicalize the far right. And that's what I'm getting at is that because the, 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 the let's call it the progressive and or radical left is so minuscule and so fragile 
fractured and so atomized that really the only quote-unquote organized opposition, to the extent that we can use that term, is the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. This now leads us down a further rabbit hole in the sense that the far right goes further right and they look for their next torchbearer. And, you know, Pence is kind of this like weird sort of like Christian, you know, far right radical or whatever, but he's like a cardboard cutout like any other Washington guy. This isn't some charismatic leader that's going to be able to galvanize this far right base. But that's not to say that there isn't one lurking five, ten years from now. Well, there was one lurking a few years ago. His name was Andrew Breitbart, and he died of a heart attack in his 40s. But uh, I'm sure you remember him, but he was very charismatic, and he was one of the people that was cobbling together this this, um, you know, I'm going to use this in hyper aerial quotes, alt right media empire. Uh, I, I think the term alt right is an idiotic euphemism. Um, I think we should call call these opinions and these ideological uh, folks what they are, fascists. Um, which is, you know, neo fascists. Yep. Right. And um, I, I think, however, that you're you're right again that Trump is just sort of a bumbling reality TV star in a culture that has, um, you know, really lost any kind of discernible uh, means by which to determine between fact and fiction. We live in an infotainment culture. Neil Postman said he, we were amusing ourselves to death in 1985, and here we are. Um, you know, I think the pulse on, on, on the uh, patient of the U.S. is tepid at best, I think we're being torn asunder uh, internally, not by Russia's Putin, by by many of these reactionary uh, elements in the society, including the transnational capitalist class that's on its, you know, I think it's on one of its last leg rapacious binges as the, you know, as the world burns. And, and I think, I think literally, you know, if we, again, there is no room for tepid, Look, how many of these idiot Democrats voted for Trump's camp, uh, cabinet posts? I mean, I have to use that term clinically, idiot, right? Not as, a, as an ad hominem, but, but as, a, as a serious um, commentary about how, how if these people truly believe that going along, they're going to be able to inch away at, the, at this reactionary right-wing agenda, they must a, be ahistorical beings, number one. And number two, you know, they must just be completely narcissistically delusional about what they think they might get out of it for themselves at the expense of the rest of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, there, there's another thing that I want to discuss with you because I've, I've been sort of fighting this fight uh, for, well, essentially since Donald Trump became the president, but, you know, even longer than that. And I know that, uh, you know, you, you've dealt with it as well. And that is this... Um, you know, it's not necessarily happening among everybody, but uh, among a certain section of the, you know, politically minded left, especially on social media, there is this uh, knee-jerk reaction every time you hear, uh, you know, real real substantive critique of Trump and an attack on Trump. There are some whose knee-jerk reaction is, well, yeah, but what about Obama? Obama was doing this. Oh, yeah, so Trump is rounding up immigrants and deporting them. Well, Obama deported two and a half million immigrants. And on and on. Well, Obama was waging seven war. Obama was uh, involved in bombing Syria and uh, right. Libya and all of these things. In other words, any, any uh, attack on the current president who is engaged in actual policy, who has his finger on the nuclear button, is met with a yeah, but 
critique, which essentially acts as a form of deflection. While on the one hand, we do want to talk about the the continuous and seamless transition of power within the empire, regardless of Democrat and Republican, at the same time, you don't want to serve as a sort of shield for those who are currently in power. And I think that this is sort of this push and pull that we're witnessing right now, and I think it's somewhat destructive because I remember back in early 2009 when uh and and in you know by the summer of 2009 especially when i was you know trying to sh- scream from the mountaintops obama's enabling a right wing coup in honduras obama is attacking yep. the left in latin america obama's doing this obama's doing that and i was constantly met with well yeah but what about bush bush was worse bush was doing this and bush was doing that and i said oh, well yeah. wait a second wait a second obama's now the president he's open to the criticism of course bush was a disgusting degenerate but he's out of the White House. Can we also talk about who's in the White House? And so I want to get your take on this kind of constant tension between the criticism of that what that which was versus attacking that that is. I think a quick historical caveat is always in order. Uh, I think that it is there's nothing wrong with talking about the con, you know the 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 long continuum of. Uh, the berserker imperium that we are now in. Uh, But I think also that we should focus on matters at hand. We should focus on what's happening in the now. We should be directing our attention and our critique and our deconstruction and our suggestions for alternatives with what we're facing right now because Barack Obama is gone. He is not in the White House any longer. I think it's important to note the continuum. I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a real thing, empire and global capital. But I, I think that the danger is, is that if we go back and start looking at every one of these other presidents or administrations, it's a red herring. Yes. It turns into a distraction away from, okay, fantastic. So we've been building this monstrously, uh, you know, quote, friendly fascist machine, as some political scientists had, had called it decades ago. What now? Well, so what now means we have to actually say what now? And if you take a look at the people that Trump is surrounded by, I mean, there's some wildly radical ideologues yep. uh, on, in terms of the right end of the spectrum. One might even use the term radical instead of reactionary because they're really trying to forge a path further and further through nationalism, through racial politics and identification, um, uh, the theocracy. I mean, you know, this this is, I think, you know, and I re- I've lived through I lived through the Reagan years, uh, you know, the Clinton Bush Clinton years, the W Bush years. Uh, my God, I was thinking, wow, how could we get further to the right than this? I know. And then, I- and then came <laughs> Obama, and I was on the mountaintop with you, screaming the same things. Um, and, and then now we have Trump, and um, you know, Hillary Clinton, of course, would have been you know, a neoliberal train wreck from outer space. But I think in Donald Trump, we're seeing the hatching of, um, you know, or or sort of a platform for this extraordinarily dangerous series of of, uh, ideas, if you want to call them that, uh, looking for an avenue for action. And I think many of these people are ahistorical or are fictitiously historically driven actors that I might argue, and I don't know if how this is possible in our current mindset, but I think they are potentially more dangerous than the neoliberal neoconservatives who have 
banded forces, by the way, to try to unseat or topple the Trump presidency. Um, and I think that we should really take note of that. I mentioned it during the campaign numerous times that I was astounded as how many neocons lined up behind the Clinton machine. Um, but that's, that, that's, of course, how far right that they have shifted within the Democratic Party. But now we're dealing with the Trump administration. And now we're dealing with you know people that are even resigning, uh, I suppose that's or not even getting to the goalposts, whether it's a Flynn or a Putzer or uh, we see Davos, but she's getting shut down wherever she goes to try to go to schools. I mean, again, if there's one thing that happened here, and again, I have my own uh, my own little slight for the pantsuiters, pantsuiters and the pussy hats, right? Where were you for the last eight years? Sure, but after my ten second snippy aside. I got to sit down and figure out what are we doing now? What are we going to do now that everybody else is paying attention and other people are awakened to these things? And that doesn't mean you say yes to everybody that says no to Trump per se, but it does mean that we have to pay attention to what Trump is doing now, where he's headed now. And this whole executive order avalanche and all of this keep up with me now harkens back to Karl Rove when Ron Suskind was writing about the Bush administration. And the, uh, the quote was eventually attributed to Rove where he said, we make history. You basically as journalists just follow us. You can analyze us later. You write down what we do. But we're, histor- we're history's actors. We're making it as we go along. And you are no longer relevant other than to tell other people what we have done. And I think that that is a real danger with the way Bannon is helping roll out so many conflicting things, so many things that they know are going to create a massive backlash that it also potentially enables them to be doing other things that the corporate media will never cover. Because now the corporate media is self-interested to the degree to which they're trying to embarrass Trump or call him out on certain surface lies. But I'm wondering how much they're actually analyzing the nuances and the plutocratic conflicts happening in the so-called secret government like we mentioned before, Eric. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And one thing that I discussed at length with our mutual uh, friend Robbie Martin on his program um, has to do with this with, – with what I've been calling the, uh, the weaponization of oppression or the weaponization of victimhood. And you'll notice that this is one of the really potent weapons that the Trump administration is using that they are literally in power at the at the at the topmost echelons of power in the empire in the white house in control of the vast institutions of the of the state and of the empire and yet they're able to present themselves as victims they're victims of the media they're victims of the deep state they're victims of this victims of that victims of liberals victims of political correctness and Absolutely. over and over over and over again, they play the role of victim. And I'm one thing that I've argued that is really not discussed is whether or not this is a deliberate ploy that Indeed. Ban- that Bannon is somebody who understands the need for victimization because that's really what galvanized the Trump movement. If you have yeah. affluent people in you know in in California and working class people in Ohio and poor people in Appalachia or whatever, all of them banding together to support Donald Trump. Yeah. 
it was through this concept of a shared oppression, right? It's that, manufactured empathy. Exactly. And 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 now that they are in power, they continue to do this sort of we are the victims of all of these yeah. nefarious forces. We only forces. have every branch of government under our control. Exactly. People like Milo Yiannopoulos only have every platform known you know, to all of like from the White House to Breitbart to Bill Maher to UC. And it plays right into the hands, by yes. the way, of these people to shut them down. I know a lot of people on the left disagree with me about this, but I, you know, I, I couldn't disagree more uh, with people like Milo Yiannopoulos. But, you know, when, when they talk, you know, it's so easy to refute or to dis- dismantle and deconstruct the things they say. They want victimhood. This is why I think they need to be called out in public. I don't think Jeremy Scahill should have denied going on the, the Mar show. I think he should have went on the Bill Mar show and went both barrels, not just the people like Milo Yiannopoulos, but the entire movement that he represents that demands a construction of empathy around faux victimhood. So these people can never be questioned and they flip the narrative against anybody that tries to service or fight for social justice by trying to make it seem like they're PC police and the rest of this. I think the way to fight fascists is head on. And I don't believe in violence. I'm not saying there's never a use for it, but I don't believe in punching them in the face per se. Uh, But what I do believe is that you can intellectually give them a serious cerebral cortex hemorrhage on the basis of factual history and what we know these people are up to and doing duplicitously. They need to be called out. They need to be deconstructed. They need to be dismantled and they need to be dismissed. And you don't do that by playing pussyfoot with them and by sort of letting them have their say necessarily or letting them control the narrative control the narrative by saying that the left is now censoring them, which makes the right victims yet again. Yeah, I, I agree with you on on some points there. I would probably have some some disagreement with you I on some others. I know we disagree on some of those yeah, points. And, and I'm not I, – I, that's really not the direction I wanted to go, although I would love to spend an hour talking just about that issue because I think it's an important one. Well, um, we did on the Project Censored show two weeks ago with David Talbot. So. <laughs> oh, there you go. Perfect. So and, – and of course there's a long and rich history of uh, – the use of violence by anti-fascists in order to break up fascism because it also, of course, depends on monopoly of force and owning of the streets. That's how fascist movements work. And and that's how I'm in agreement with you. So I, but, but, but I want to come back to, to this point because I really want to get your take on this. Okay. So we agree on this concept of victimization, but here's my, here's my real, you know, the real crux of this question. How is this going to be used? Because I see the Trump administration using it in a very clever way. And I think it's a mistake to think that they're just, they don't know what they're doing. They're playing this all by ear and bumbling through this entire thing. I think they knew, they knew, they knew perfectly well that when they rolled out a, a, a Muslim ban, and that's essentially what it was, that there would be this backlash. And why do they want that backlash? Because then Trump and Bannon and the rest of them can go back to to their base and say, see, we tried to deliver on our promises and the liberals and the media and everybody else stopped us. They prevented us. Now, what does that do? That radicalizes them further. That creates a further allegiance to Trump and Bannon and the rest of them. This is part of how they're building their movement. It's through this concept of victimization. It's a co-option of pitchforks and torches. Yes, exactly right. I, I exactly agree. And I alluded to that a few minutes ago. 
by saying that again, the, this isn't uh, this isn't necessarily bumbling. This is a carefully played out thing because they rolled out all these executive orders at the same time they're rolling out Milo and Breitbart. At the same time they're rolling out, you know, whatever thumbing of the nose at the press and the media. This is a calculated effort to sow chaos in many ways, and then they get to be the ones that impose order. Right, and I think th- I think that this is again. We saw this during the W. Bush years when a lot of people, liberals in particular, but others on the left, love to lampoon W. Bush for being a moron. And I said, yeah, well, say what you want about him while he's choking on the pretzel, but Paul Wolfowitz <laughs> isn't a moron. Yeah, Richard Pearl isn't an idiot. Uh, meaning a dumb person. These people are calculating to the core, and they really don't seem to have any kind of empathy themselves, and uh, they don't seem to have any serious interest in bettering the lives of everyday people, whether it's in this country or around the world. And I think it's very important to see what's happening right now in the architecture of the Trump era that's being sort of conducted by people like Bannon and like Sean Spicer and like Kellyanne Conway and like some of these. These are actors, many of them, but there are there are strategies behind them that are, again, they are they're they're trial balloons. Each and every one is a trial balloon. That has multiple purposes, and I think that if we start to oversimplify it or dismiss it because we don't like some of these people or their policies, I think we do ourselves a deep disservice. And look at how quickly the, see, the, the Trump administration and their actions have, in my view at least, sort of blown up this, this complete mythology that the, that the entire establishment is arrayed against them. Are you kidding me? The, in, oh, yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in one month, they have rolled back so many environmental regulations. They have rolled back the you know, departments of yeah, the government gorgeous. and all of these different things that, that have really kind of thrown the doors wide open for big oil, for big agriculture, for big pharma, for so many different industries, coal and all of the rest of them, that there are definitely elements within the capitalist class that are looking at this and saying, well, it may be kind of unstable and it may cause social unrest, but my God, the profits, my God. Yeah, the Dow hit 20,000. Exactly. So there is this this growing concern in my mind that there are not just fringe billionaires like the Mercer family and Sheldon Adelson and whomever, but that there are people deeply within, even on the the center of the establishment, that are looking at what Trump is going to be able to deliver and they're going to say, geez – I could get with the program. Yeah, we're going to do just fine. We may not like the, you know, to publicly align with some of the other more unpopular views regarding immigration or race or women or what have you. But, you know, the United States is a capitalist society. Uh, and it's far more of a capitalist society than it's ever been a dem- democratic society. And those are the forces that tend to shape policy. And, you know, in Trump, they have a package, right? They have a package. They get the Puzzlers, even though this guy's now gone. They get the Rex Tillerson, you know, Exxon Mobil. Yep. They, they get these people. And look, th- that's a corporate wet dream. You know, I mean, yes, we'd be sitting here, you know, utterly beside ourselves at whomever Hillary Clinton would have in her cabinet. But these are some of the people that I was – I am actually was astonished on a few occasions – that that Trump could be even so audacious 
to possibly nominate some of the most unqualified and ludicrously conflicted people to some of these posts. And I that know another trial balloon to just see how far it can go. And I know that they're sitting there and saying to themselves, we'll get with the program for Trump for four to eight years. Then he himself is going to deliver the corporate liberal that we want anyway, four years from now or eight years from now, because it's going to be an anybody but Trump scenario for the end. And then they're going to say, now we just shift right back into Obama mode and we keep the whole train moving. You see That's how- what they've been doing for the last 30 40 years that's exactly what they've been doing and 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 that's the part that i think too many people are overlooking that there is a long game being played here and this isn't about Indeed. conspiracy this is about the way nope. in which the empire and the ruling class operates it's about the plan and the plan has gone you go back to the wilson era and this is the plan from Wilson, you shift back right, then you go to FDR, then you go back to war in the right, then you go back, then you get civil rights in the 60s, then you go back to the long haul of the 70s and 80s, from the Lewis Powell memo on through Reagan, then you somehow come back with Clinton, who is dressed up as a great liberal, and the pendulum swim, swings back, but guess what? The pendulum only swings back from the reactionary to the center-right. And he gives us NAFTA, and he deconstructs Glass-Steagall, and you know the so story. It's a, so it's a going, it's a going back and forth. But within that, within that movement back and forth, it's, it keeps shifting right. right. It keeps ever shifting right. right. Ever right. Ever right. And, and 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 that's what and that's what Trump is, right? Trump is such a jump even further to the right. You know, I was I was uh, going back and you know listening to some to some you know rock music from like 1980 that was hard you know protest music against Reagan, and they were using oh, yes. a lot of the language that we're that, that we're now be. using about Trump and talking about how much of an extreme jump to the right this was. And then we and then if we look back at the last eight years, Obama was to the right of Reagan. Absolutely. And Clinton was to the right of Nixon. Exactly. It's... Yeah. No, I'm right on board with you as an historian. I'm right on board with that analysis. And I think we, you know, I think we really uh, benefit from having, you know, these kind of long term historical conversations about like even where we started this conversation, the genesis of fake news. I mean, that goes back ages, but the current iteration of the term and its weaponization has different connotations in the present. But nevertheless, you know, I think we're we're in we're in some uh, we're in for some serious some serious times here, I think. And um, I, I'm, I don't know what talking about it exactly might solve, per se. And that's why I understand why some of my my friends um celebrated Richard Spencer getting popped in the head on video, even though that could have been a a setup situation to develop more victimhood because the so-called black bloc is never identified. Right. And it's just a brand name. It could be anybody dressed up as anybody, just like, just like anonymous, you know, who knows who they are, you know, or ISIS or anybody else. Um, So much more to discuss, but we're going to have to leave it there. We're just out of time. Um, I want to, I want to urge people to pick up a copy of project censor, the 2017 40th anniversary edition. Uh, It's, it's a vital book every single year, each and every edition, uh, all the more so because it's the 40th anniversary. Um, Mickey, just tell people where they should go to follow you, follow Project Censored regularly, and to support the, pro- the, the project. Well, as we're a nonprofit, so we get by just you know very little. We don't do foundation grants anymore because we've managed to anger so many people across that moneyed spectrum. 
Um, so we get just small donations from people to keep things going. We believe in press freedom and media freedom more than really uh, you know anything else. That's our purpose is critical media literacy education. Projectcensored.org is our website. Our sister site, Global Critical Media Literacy Project, is gcml.org. Our radio show, Project Censored, shows on 40 stations around the country uh, every week. We work with Nolan Higdon, Peter Phillips, many others. And um, you know, just wanted to close things out with a quote from our old friend, the late, great Ben Bigdickian, whom we dedicated our book to this year, who wrote Media Monopoly. And to riff a little bit on um, Nick Johnson, no matter what your first interest is or first priority is, if your second priority isn't doing something about media or media democracy, you're not going to get very far in your first endeavor. And uh, Ben Bigdickian wrote, media power is political power. To give citizens a choice and ideas and information is to give them a choice in politics. And if a nation has narrowly controlled information, it will soon have narrowly controlled politics. Ben Bigdikian. And boy, that we just finished with that in the last 40 years, Eric. And that's exactly how winnowed and narrowed things have become. And our political spectrum has shifted radically and narrowly to the right as a result. Absolutely right. Well, um, on that sour note, we will leave it there. Uh, Mickey Huff, thanks again for coming on the show. Hope to have you back at some point real soon. Listeners, thank you as always for tuning in, and I will speak to you in two weeks. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.